Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Killian. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, I am uh, warming myself up with my second cup of coffee. I was just outside and um, it's a little nippy outside, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, it. I don't know what the weather looks like in your neck of the woods, but uh, it looks like a nice day today. And so I'm looking forward to sort of kicking off my afternoon with you here having this conversation. Uh, Kelly, and I'm also delighted to say that you're a new, you're one of the newer members of the responsive team. So uh, I do want to say to our, all of our listeners, Killian is a new member of our responsive consulting team. He works with our managing partner, 
uh, Michael Dixon, uh, and, uh, and, and, and I hope, I hope everyone has an opportunity to sort of get to know Killian a little bit this afternoon. If they're interested in perhaps working with him, Killian will make sure to put all your contact information in the show notes so that, uh, anybody who's interested in reaching out to you, uh, they can certainly do that. Killian, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you so much, Jason. I'm really, really uh, excited to be joining the response to be working with you and with the managing partner, Michael Dixon and, and everyone else. A um, little bit about myself, just a, just a boy from rural central, central Texas that's uh, been involved with Catholic fundraising over the last seven years, from diocesan capital campaigns to you know, giving programs to um, kind of holistic development plans for parishes. And um, I'm excited to be part of the team because I think you've really hit on something valuable. Um, I think the old systems of fundraising, um, both with secular nonprofits as well as within the religious within the Catholic world um, are failing us and, and a new, I'm really, really glad to be working with you and with everyone else. You know, that's, a, that's a, sort of an interesting way to put it. Um, and I know you're, you've got an appreciation for the liberal arts and you've probably got a pretty good grasp of history. Like, like I, I don't necessarily have the best grasp, but I, I guess you have at least as good as mine. <laughs> um, I sort of wonder if it's not that we need a new paradigm. It's just that we need to go perhaps back, turn back the clock and get to a, a much more, maybe an original paradigm, don't you think? Sure, sure. Yeah, synthesize the modern 20th century fundraising context with a um, little bit more personal approach, I think, from earlier times would be would be excellent. I'm, I should also say, you know, I'm really, really passionate both about my Catholic faith, but, but also in the idea that um, the French writer Tocqueville popularized famous work, yeah. Democracy in America. And yeah. that idea was that, you know, what makes America truly unique, what makes its democracy flourish um, is its robust civil society, what he called its of association. Um, and it's the spirit of association, acting outside of both the market and the state, outside of both corporate and government bureaucracy that really allows to thrive as a nation. And so, so what is that um, spirit of association. Well, it's it's the local church, it's the food bank, it's the road, it's the masons, it's the local nonprofit helping to empower kids who are uh, maybe at a disadvantage socioeconomically. So that's why I do what I do. My hope is that I'm able to help these associate organizations, and then in turn, in some small way, communities, our our country, and our democracy thrive. Yeah, yeah, that, that, you know, and that that that's what that's what excites me about the team that we're sort of pulling together. Uh anybody who can uh who can basically trumpet the horn for Tocqueville or anybody who sort of thought sort of thought before we who who thinks about this work sort of before we let the marketplace sort of take it all over, you know. Uh we have we have definitely let marketplace thinking um we've sort of narrowly focused our assumptions on the idea that our donors are consumers and I think there's a there's a there's a there's an itch. There's a desire to see our donors with certain higher expectation. You know, I think we want to have higher expectations of our donors, but consequently, we've got to therefore have higher expectations of ourselves, which is more like being citizens in a community. I was talking to my students over at the college last night, having the exact same conversation about the idea that 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 at times like sort of we've experienced in the last several years with the pandemic and with what we're experiencing with some of the you know events around the world. Um, I think our identity wants to be, I think we're all craving an identity that's more rooted in citizenship rather than what we can buy at, you know, Walmart or Target or the local department store, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Which, um, 
with that idea in mind of having a higher expectation, meaning that we yeah. have a higher expectation of what we do. Um, yeah. The I wanted to talk about today is kind of a continuation of a conversation that you were having with uh, Responsive's managing partner, Michael Dixon, earlier a few weeks. A couple of weeks uh, you, ago, yeah. You guys talked uh, about the stat of seeking to enter the fundraising world, don't want to directly. And you guys had a great conversation of why is that? What can we do to fix that? Um, but something you specifically touched on, Jason, was uh, the criticism, the rebuke coming from some, which is that we'll maybe want to meet one-on-one with donors is because they don't yep. act like us. They come from yep. a different class or a different culture than us. And yep. um, that's a legitimate issue that's not going to go away anytime. Yeah. yeah. So how are we empowering our fundraisers to meet that issue? And I think one, you just have to be blunt and say parts of your job is to interact with who are very different than you. Yeah. That's just, that is, that is the goal. That is the task. And that in your, you find the universal issues that fail us and, and how do we go about empowering people um, to do that? So that's the big idea that I want to talk about. I have some thoughts on it, but I, I but I wanted to hear from you. We just um, the best way we can do that. Yeah, we just talked, and again, I'm I'm sort of just uh, reflecting on the conversation that I had with my students at the college last night. We were talking about Robert Putnam's, you know, s- social capital theory, the difference between bridging and bonding, and and I think fundraising has sort of been we've we've sort of existed in this worldview for so long which is again this is a consequence of the market the market is a homogenizing sort of machine it basically makes everything the same and i think in some ways fundraising has sort of either tolerated and in some cases embraced the idea that the more homogeneous we can sort of create our populations of whether it be our people on our side of the receiving side of the exchange or on the giving side of the exchange the better I don't think we want that diversity. And I think that translates. So how does this translate into that conversation about the fundraiser wanting to sit across the table? You know, some of the, some of the tension that's been inherent in some of the conversations we've recently had on the podcast is from individuals who obviously have some hesitation. I mean, they've, they've expressed in some cases, some very blatant hesitation to sit across the table from somebody who doesn't look, act, think, sort of exist in the world in, in very much the same way they do. And I think in some ways, uh, you know, to, to get, but to sort of tip our hat to Putnam's work um, in the, in, in anyone who's talking about the notion of creating social capital, instead of bonding, we need to need to know how to bridge. We need to know how to build bridges. And I think if anything, any, if any of the tension and here I am getting up on my soapbox, this is really supposed to be your show, but you asked the questions. It's just that idea. I mean, the, the, the bridging, the, the bridging this, the, the idea that fundraisers can be boundary spanners. I don't know how many of us is fundraiser. That's a good way to sort of finish my thought there. My response to your kicking us off. I don't know how many of us as fundraisers want to be boundary spanners, which is to say how many of us actually want to cross lines and interact with people who don't look and act and think and sort of exist in the world the same way we do. Is that sort of along the lines of what you're thinking? Yeah. And I'd love to, I mean, first of all, uh, if you haven't read his latest work, the upswing, I, uh, yeah, um, fabulous work, work. really, really enjoyed it. And, um, I think no matter where you're coming on the political spectrum, you'll you'll get. But I but I'd love for you to define more about the difference between um, 
what did you say? Bridge building and 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 bonding. Bonding. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's the that's the sort sort of the two functions that Putnam talks about in bowling alone. It's the idea that basically bonding is that idea of basically we bonding is what we do with homogeneous groups. So it's like you know it's like a bunch of you and you and I, a bunch of guys who get together and play poker on Friday night. That's a bonding. Right. That's what we call bonding. Um, and it's oftentimes very, you know, we learn how to bond in middle school and high school when we bond with what we refer to as cliques, but then bridge and, 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 and that's a perfectly normal thing. We want to be like, we want to identify with others who are like us. And that's a, that's a perfectly natural, normal function of what it means to be a human being. But what, but what Putnam's argument is directly in, and perhaps even in bowling alone is sort of indirectly is the idea that the nonprofit sector actually is a, has a bridging effect and which is to say that it's supposed to build bridges between homogeneous groups and therefore create the heterogeneous sort of the thriving that sort of exists in sort of a very pluralistic heterogeneous, you know, world of diversity, which is increasingly the world that we live in. Um, People like you and I, two white guys are are, are probably some of the most, you know, our 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 group of homogeneous folks are probably some of the more resistant to this and i think fundraisers have the opportunity to sort of teach to teach that um and demonstrate it model it you know know how to be comfortable across the table from somebody who doesn't look like you or i for example well that to that point white guys which is which is very true um still i i think we can all empathize in our experience with fundraising and being in cultures and situations where we're we're kind of out of, like I said, a boy from rural, raised in the <laughs> lowest levels of the middle class, and um, and then you know I recently spent three years in Park City, Utah, which is yeah. um, you know a, a fabulous, gorgeous mountain ski Sundance Film Festival where most of the 2002 Olympics were held. It's a very made up of very very awesome, talented people who have held high positions um, on big cities on the coast. And, you know, I came there to to help some organizations fundraise there. And I had never ski go skiing for spring break. We didn't have that type of money. I didn't I uh, didn't have anything relatable with them. And of course that was nerve wracking. And I was constantly told by people, oh well you gotta go skiing with everybody. You gotta go golfing it with everybody. But I think that's the mistake that a lot of that they shoot for bonding over what you said of bridge building. And what I yeah. came to found was that people fulfilling their passions through giving to organizations, they weren't looking, they were looking for someone passions were almost from the outside way. I actually think it can be a strength if we're different, if we're coming yeah. outside the culture, it allows mm. um, that's not going to occur with their body that they play golf. And I think a lot of schools, a lot of nonprofit organizations make the mistake Let's find, um, let's find the mom, let's find the dad who knows everyone in the community, who's friends with everyone in the community, the development director. And um, I think that's, uh, that's a mistake. And so try to tell, to give some confidence to anyone who's feeling nervous about feeling out of place in the organization or the culture within their fundraising within, make it be, ask questions, which you that are obvious ask those important questions. Don't assume certain things of them. Allow them to know them on the most personal level. What are your yeah, thoughts I think on that? The, uh, yeah, I, I think the, I think the, um, you know, it's one thing for us to be talking in, in, in today's context, oftentimes this, 
you know, how we're creating diversity around the table or who's at the table oftentimes has to do with ethnicity or gender, you know, political affiliation or something. But I think the challenge that we most encounter in fundraising is, is essentially that the divergent sort of views and, and experiences when it comes to wealth or money. Um, and, and so regardless of who, who, you, you know, if you and I were at the lunch table and one of us was soliciting the other for gifts, oftentimes there's this sort of this power imbalance between the person who presumably has more and somebody who presumably, you know, not presumably who oftentimes has less. And, um, and as fundraisers, we're oftentimes in that, in that, um, in that posture of thinking we have less. And I think there's a, I, I think there's something that we've got to wrestle with in the fundraising world. This is some of the coaching work that I, I know you and the rest of our team is excited about. We've got to get fundraisers to sit down at the table like peers with the person at the cross the table who they don't feel like they're peers with. And so regardless of what the differences are, you know, we've got to come to the table without this supplicant sort of inferiority sort of complex that we oftentimes sort of carry around, regardless of who that person is. There, there's there's probably always going to be a diversity of people across the table who have more, perhaps who have more or have different. Like you could almost just put it because they almost in some ways mean the same thing. You know, there's a there's a certain degree of what it means to be different and something to say that they have more of something. Um that's sort of what our work calls us to do, isn't it? Is to sit com- you know, confidently, maybe not comfortably, but at least confidently in a place where that person across the table has something to offer that you don't necessarily have. Yeah, I mean, my experience, successful people who are generous is that they're yeah. interested in inter- interacting with people who can they can learn something from. or. Yeah that they can fill their passions. And yeah. so I, I would, I would argue that um, the insecure fundraiser is going mm-hmm. to attempt to schmooze with them because, because they feel inferior to them. And the only way that they interact with them is, is to, is to suck up to them. Yeah. I would argue that the confident donor wants to see someone different than them. Someone who's confident from them learn from, or who they can see as a partner to fulfill are they meeting with you? Well, it's because you're helping them do something they can't accomplish on their. And I never even thought about it that way, but I think you're exactly right. I think the donor is actually oftentimes coming to the table, almost expecting or anticipating a, a level of difference. It's actually what sort of, it's, it's almost like what sort of compels them to come to the table. And I think there's a lot of people out in the world in a numerous context. Um, I just had this conversation with a friend of mine, basically said, I don't want to be at the table with people like me anymore. I'm tired of sort of being in these bonded, homogeneous sort of groups. It's almost like we're we're deliberately finding ways to bridge, to bridge, just like you're describing the donor. And now I'm sort of just contemplating how many times I've sat across the table from somebody who didn't sort of exist in the same world as I do, who probably was in some ways there because we were different. It's pretty deep stuff, man. Well, I mean, um, I had a really great internship when I was in college financial advising. And, and part of the internship yeah. was that you went to your initial network and then your referrals from your network to go sell life insurance and then wealth management services and things like that. And you were, yeah. you know, an 18 and 19 year old, 20 year old kid, you know, yeah. next to you. But you eventually did get into some conversations with some people you didn't know 
who had serious means. And one of the things that we're right. coached consistently when talking with these people is, look, the only reason they're meeting with you is because they think you can provide value to them on their own. Now, that was right. in the sense, but that still holds true for us as, as humans. Um, you're giving the donor to fulfill their passions, to fulfill their highest goals, to you know their day-to-day work job. Right, to transcend their, their identity group, whatever their identity group is. They're, you're giving them an opportunity to transcend, you know, whatever they're bonded with. And, and I think some pe- I think for some people, um, oh, there's an author, uh, there's an author in Vancouver, Canada. Um, uh, uh, anyway, I, I've, I've read a lot and used his work in some of my writing, but, but he talks about this notion of what's called psychosocial integration. It's the idea that we want to sort of be individuals, but we also want to be integrated with a world that's somewhat inconsistent or different than us. That's what it is to be sort of in, you know, to be a citizen of a, a you know, a broader community in a broader world that doesn't look like you or me. Yeah. Right. And I, and I would put this to, you know, our own nation and, and cultural in general is, yeah, we can we can stay safe within a tribe because it's far riskier to go out uh, outside of the tribe and interact with others that are different than us. But the benefits that we get from having a melting pot multicultural society so outweigh the risks that we take. And so I would I would ask fundraisers to feel confident and empowered to specifically find donors that don't believe the same things as that don't look like you, that uh, have a heck of a lot more money than than you, and ask deep, meaningful questions because they're going to give a different perspective than you, and you're going to learn a lot from them, and they're going to learn a lot from you, and the the value of that interaction is going to so outweigh the risk. Of you feeling uncomfortable, not in your tribe. Okay, let, but so let's. Uh, I want to. Uh, I want to unravel. So, uh, because the the reflection that you brought to the table today is based on that earlier podcast. I mean, that earlier the, the previous podcast conversation, which was which was a conversation that was sort of riffing on the uh, on the conversation that I was having on social media about the eighty. You know, the, the suggestion that eighty percent of these fundraisers don't actually want to have lunch with people. Um, is is if we were to if we were to sort of itemize the list of reasons is 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 this in your mind a primary reason or are there is there another reason? Um, I mean, I'm quite convinced there's a large majority of our fundraisers out there who, given the given the context in which we've created for them to operate in, you know, four out of five would just rather have a job that doesn't require them to actually sit in this. In the, at this lunch table with the donor, because there's so much baggage that sitting at that lunch table comes with, is this idea that they can't identify with the person on the other side of the table a primary reason, or do you think there's other reasons? I would say the overarching human beings don't like to be put in uncomfortable situations, and okay. it, yeah. we can be yeah, and and so that uncomfortableness can come from a variety of things. It can yeah. come, um, you know, from feeling like you're dealing with someone who comes from a different worldview or background or culture than you. Just a, a nervousness to talk about important, like, you know, life dreams and money and where we want to be. Um, but so I think it's rooted in uncomfortableness. And so I would, a, a mantra for for us as fundraisers should be comfortable with the uncomfortable. I mean, I, I, again, I think we need to be a little bit more 
um, blunt with with the people who are um, seeking to fundraise. You know, I, I started out the conversation by saying one part, one of the main goal is to interact with people who are different than you. That that is a yeah. And yeah. Um, and then two, I think another goal that you should be having that we should be saying to fundraisers from the start is become comfortable with the uncomfortable. If you're feeling uncomfortable, that's that's a good sign. And I don't mean I don't mean being um, um, abusive workplace situation where you're being overworked or uh, sure. hassled or right. things like that. I'm not I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about growth as a human being, um, yeah. taking challenges, taking risks. That's inherent. That that should talking to um, applicants about um, aspiring fundraisers about. I have, I don't, you and I haven't talked on this point thoroughly enough to, to sort of know that we're in sync on this, but I have to imagine based on your, that, that comment that we're pretty much aligned on the idea that fundraising has in large part sort of with, with, with what I call our arms length fundraising tactics, we've sort of removed all that uncertainty, all that unpredictability, all that discomfort, all that, everything that comes with the fact that, for example, you and I, you know, don't know each other terribly well. And so we're just getting to know each other and we don't know what the next, the next thing that the next person is going to say, um, because we can't predict each other's behavior. Um, you know, Killian, in your mind, when you think about your fundraising experiences and, and, you know, we think about walking around an exhibit hall at a fundraising conference, for example, I mean, how much of what we're selling to, to organizations is based on the idea of sort of just making it more comfortable when in fact, a lot of our organizations exist. A lot of our organizations exist because the world isn't comfortable. And the best thing we can do is help the people that we're serving to realize that it isn't comfortable. I mean, there's people doing things in our world that are awful. And by just sort of tolerating it doesn't, uh, or just pretending that it's not there. I think this goes back to, um, to your, your concept. Uh, I'm going to get the, the behavioral language wrong, but <laughs> is it the intervener? Is it, it has been cast as kind of like um, um, they're just those people off in those offices and we kind of need them to raise the funds so that we can keep going. Yeah. But yeah. But they're not essential. What, what's the language? Yeah, we operate. Those? Yeah. We operate like a, what I call an intervening subculture, kind of like Dorothy <laughs> and the wizard of Oz. So Dorothy's, you know, the fundraising, you know, the, the nonprofit sort of props itself up like the sector does in some ways, or, you know, the funder as in fundraising sort of operates like this intervener who's there to deal with the wicked witch that the wizard doesn't want to deal with. And so when we sort of exist that way, what the, what the sector expects of us as fundraisers is to, to sort of exist on the periphery and create a buffer between us and those donors that we're afraid of is kind of the, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The intervening subculture is the, I think that's the first time we've used that language here on the podcast, Killian. That's um, Ooh, exciting. Exciting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe that'll be the, maybe that'll be the, the title of the, uh, the title of the broadcast. Well, and I think it goes back, you know, when I was getting my, my MBA, my favorite line quote, the famous quote was marketing's too important to be left to the marketing department. And so yeah. what I would say is that fundraising is too important to be left to the fundraising department, which is yeah. fundraisers at all. But yeah. it's to say that the fundraisers need to be integral to the mission. So like you said, if your mission is about um, encountering situations in the world and trying to help to solve them, uh-huh. fundraising needs to look very similar and be integral. And so, uh, you know, that starts with the with the CEO all the way down to whoever's writing the thank you notes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think 
I think fundraising has become uh, fundraising. The fundraising community has become this, what I call this intervening subculture. It's a relatively, uh, it, it might be diverse in terms of, you know, who we are, but in terms of how we think and how we perceive our work and the way that we sort of posture ourselves in the sector, it's pretty homogeneous. And I think that in a, that in and of itself is, is rather problematic. I kind of like the way that the, you know, like a, you know, I was, again, I'm reflecting on some of the conversation I had with my students last night. Um, you know, a, a university is interdisciplinary in purpose because that's what advance or, or like your appreciation for liberal arts, it, it sort of advances the, that's how society thrives is by creating these diversity of ideas and these diversity of opinions and stuff. Um, but we've gotten so comfortable with shallow, you know, homogeneous, safe messaging that can, that a machine can spit out. Um, that doesn't have any rough edges to it. Um, and ultimately comes back to your observation 10 minutes ago, Killian. Why, <laughs> why does a donor, why does it, man, you got me really thinking, brother. Uh, why does a donor want to have anything to do with a conversation, the donor you were describing? Now, granted, all donors aren't like this, but why would a donor want to come to a lunch table and have a conversation with something that basically is just sort of shallow and thin and safe? I mean, perhaps some of them want that. I don't know. True. Well, I, I think this is the part of the role of the fundraiser is you are right. There are going there are organizations that I give to because I think in general, oh, it's a good cause. I I, I want to support yeah. them. super meaningful to me. And so I make the small annual gift, right? There are other organizations that uh help me achieve who I want to be as a human being deeply involved with them. Part of the fundraiser's job is to have those visits with people to interact, to find who's in and who's in the latter. Because yeah. the people who are in the latter are the people that will make those transformative gifts that allow your organization to thrive and not be put into that that you talk about, the addiction yeah. loop, where there's always yeah. a need for money. And so you're reacting to those needs. You need to be partnering with donors who can make the transformative gifts to put your organization in a situation where they're not reacting to the need for money. Do, do those people, I, I think some, some of the writing that I'm currently working on, wrapping up this current book project, I, I think I think what also caused, go, going back to this question that Michael and I were talking about and sort of you, you brought back up here today, this idea that we don't want to sit at the lunch table I, I think the idea that a donor would sit at the lunch table and have this transformative idea, I think, where is it baked into our thinking that we necessarily have to agree with our donors and that we necessarily have to take their money? If, if your organization doesn't want to do what Mr. or Mrs. Smith want to do, tell them no and walk away from it. It's okay. Um, I, I think that's somewhere where some of the inferiority sort of baked into this, too, is that fundraisers need to be able to sit at the table and they need to work for bosses and boards that understand that their job, there's a, there's a great book that's written um, uh, about chief advancement officers in higher education, where it talks about a chief strategist is actually a better definition of what a fundraiser does. Well, if you're a strategist, you have to know how to walk away from as many opportunities as you know how to lean into. You know, if you're sitting there and Mr. Smith wants to do something that's completely incompatible with your mission, don't do it. Tell him no. Which, again, gets back to the idea that the fundraising can't be on, on the periphery, that it has to be right. integral to Integrated. your organization. So, yes. 
Quick question for you. I'm going to, um, great guys, I'm, I'm blanking on their names right now, but I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the work, the, the major gift work of it's not just about the money. Have you ever? Uh, it's not just about the money. Um... Anyways, I'm forgetting the author's name, but but two guys have been working major guests for a while. Any uh, Je- Jeff and um, the guys at the Veritas Group out in um, uh, in Philadelphia. I know Jeff and uh, Richard. I think is his name. Yes, yeah. yes. Great, great book. Um, they say a lot of things very similar to you, but they start out that whole book not talking about you know how to ask the questions in this way or how to make the ask. The whole first chapter basically is look. You need to have donors make up or have fundraising and donors make up about half of your mission statement. Yeah. It has to be integral to it. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. How important is to have explicit explicit mentions to fundraising and to donors within your mission? You know, we, we said something sort of like that in the first book, uh, Killian, and, and that's something that we teach in our in our roadshow as well. Um, is is what we called in the in the first book um, uh, uh, what what we referred to. I, I I've not read Jeff. So Jeff and Richard they, they co-authored another book here more recently, and and um um and and I have not read the first one. Uh, forgive me, Jeff. He'll he'll he might be a little offended that I'm saying that. Um, but um, it, it's what we referred to in the first book. Uh, Killian is the dual and tor- dual orientation to, towards the mission. It's the idea that. Right. That the mission doesn't just sit there and only point at the beneficiary, but the mission also points at the benefactor. And that, and again, it's the bridge. I mean, this gets back to Putnam's work with bridging versus bonding. If you're only pointing the mission at the the, the recipient, the beneficiary, and you don't recognize that that what fundraising really does, or philanthropy as a you know at a very macro level actually does, is sort of bridge the two. And the mission doesn't in some way do that for you. You're only getting like half. It, it, uh, you've worked with private schools. It's one of the things I, I'd say to private school clients all the time. If you think that your mission is just all about educating that youngster in the classroom, you're sort of missing the point of even what education is all about. Because in some ways, you're also shaping the you're shaping and informing the minds of that faculty member. But you've also got parents and a broader community that you're a part of. And so by just being this is what private schools love to do is they like to get really obsessed with the students in the classroom and, and sort of disregard everything else. So they're always raising money for the benefit of the student. There's a lot of other things that education, there's a lot of other ways in which the organization, a, a, a school, for example, fits into a, a, a community. Man, you got yeah. me warmed up. You, you know, <laughs> I'm supposed to be asking, I'm supposed to be asking you questions um, you're, you're, you're asking, <laughs> well, I guess my closest you're, not follow, you're I, not following the, you're not following the rules, Killian. <laughs> well, I, I'm a big believer. You know, you've those, those series of questions at the end of your book that are really important to ask in a, in a discovery visit. Oh, they're, yeah, they're essentially yeah. open-ended questions that allow the, the, the person to speak out who they are and what they're passionate about. I, I think that's, I, I try to incorporate that. And I think we should all try to incorporate that in any conversation that we're having, but, um, I'd kind of like to make it closing idea um, sure. going back going back to this question of and it needs um, to be a long one we need to we, we got to balance this conversation because i think <laughs> i've gotten the benefit about I, I i try to at least have my guest uh, get you know at least 50 60 of this but you've gotten me really going so i appreciate that it's been fascinating i've really enjoyed it thank you um yeah my, my closing idea going back to this idea of 
um, the scariness of sitting down with people who are different than us. Um, yeah. How do how do we do that? You know, you you put on the responsive uh, website the future of raising is is messy. How do we have yes. those con, uh, those those messy conversations, those messy interactions? And you know, yes. and listening to you and Michael talk about Michael interacts with someone who's different than me uh, really made me think of favorite 20th century political speeches, which was um, RFK speech night that that MLK died. And so I, I'd ask the viewers, anyone who's interested in this, if you're looking for inspiration about how you go all, out and speak with people different than you and do it confidently and be confident and not try to replicate, you know, the listener, the, the, the other, I really would suggest um, listening to a speech. And, and the context of it is, is this, you know, he's supposed to give in an urban He's scheduled that night to give a regular campaign speech in 1968. MLK dies, and, and all, everyone on his campaign staff is saying, don't go there. There's going to be riots across the country. It's not going to be safe for you. Don't do this. And he says, no, I'm going to draft up a basically an impromptu get it from a pickup truck, you know, from, from the center Atlas to um, a crowd of African-Americans who had basically not heard the news yet. He's going to deliver the news that, that MLK died yeah rfk is a very privileged new englander to 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 harvard and has a totally completely different background from the people he's going to be speaking with and yet in that speech he manages to both you know tell the crowd the, the horrible news and at the same time um calm them and give them not by disregarding his his privileged background but but actually leaning into it. So what does he do? He ends quoting the Greek poet Aeschylus, which you're only ever going to learn if you league education, um, and which no one in America probably really really knew of. But he harps on problems facing human beings of suffering, of justice, of hope. Yeah. Um, to deliver a really really inspiring message, which person there got and understood and ended that evening with with Indianapolis, I think was one of the only major city in America that didn't have rights that night. And um and so I, I really use that speech for inspiration. Anytime I'm nervous or unsure of going to a situation um with people who are different than me, I, I harpen back to that um to that speech for a of reasons. One, don't be afraid of getting yourself in a messy situation. Two, lean in on who you are. Don't be ashamed of who you are. And don't try to to bond in a fake way, um, right? And then three, the universal issues facing humanity. Great song when he was dying from cancer. The great great songwriter Warren Zevon, um, where he, he talks about um, about dying, and he has a line in, in the song where he says, "The rich folks suffer like the rest of us. It could happen to you." Yeah, they're rich, whether they're poor, they suffer, they get afraid. Uh, they have aspirations, they get lonely, they want to achieve something, they want to transcend themselves and their culture and their job. Focus on interacting with donors, and you'll find you have a lot more in common with them than you think. Is that what, is that, before we, before I let you go, is that sort of what is so unsettling uh, about the, so one of the things I talk about in that class that I'm referring to that I was teaching last night, uh, we kick off the, we kick off the, the semester with this idea that the 
that the nonprofit sector is just a sort of this baggy monster of contradictions. It's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's messy. And, and, and I try to sort of unsettle my students about the idea that, you know, the nonprofit sector doesn't just exist for the things that you believe in, but it actually exists for the purposes of people who believe completely differently than you do. And, and that's what actually sort of contribute again, again, this gets back to associationalism with Tocqueville and others. Um, is that what is so unsettling about the sector that nobody is sort of owning up to right now? And is that in some way sort of where we're trying to go with this team? Is that because um, because at times I, when I use the word messy and complex on the website, for example, when we put that on the website a number of years ago, I don't know that it meant what it means now on the other side of the social unrest, the pandemic, the, you know, the invasion in Ukraine, all these other things. Messy and complexity sort of mean different things now. I think that's what's the, that's, you know, you say it's an issue of the nonprofit world. I think it's an issue of America or, or even our nation. Um, You know, and if going back to Putnam, if you read the upswing, which is his latest book, which is his way of, Hey, how do we get out of this mess? And question, have we ever been in this mess before? And he makes the case that America has been in very similar about a hundred years ago. And mm-hmm. five different factors for how we got out of that mess. And everyone expects that, oh, the economic reforms and this or that was what, um, what was what got us out of it. And, and factor, but they basically identify as the leading cause, the thing that created the momentum that, that while for all these other reforms that allowed us to be a lot more unified as a country, were these associations. That there was a yeah. whole new generation of these sort of associations of you know Knights of Columbus, Rotary clubs, local churches. Yep. Um, yep. All of these things were people together to have those messy conversations and to um, come to a lot greater unity. So, yeah, I think it's an issue for a whole country. And as I said before, what I do is that I think these associations can play a huge role. And solving the issues that face us today, tomorrow, that will always face us. So, Killian, before we wrap this up, you're you're one of the newer members of our consulting team here at Responsive. Um, anytime I've got a guest on here who happens to be in a consulting posture, I always ask them, you know, who's the person that's on the listening end of this conversation that you'd like to hear from? So, so who is that organization and what sort of predicament or perhaps do they find themselves in that, uh, that you'd be open to and receptive to just having an introductory conversation? Who's that person you want to hear? Oftentimes the, the, I don't get the privilege of a lot of feedback. Uh, People don't reach out to me, but all of our guests usually get a a remarkable amount of feedback. People reach out to them and say, Hey, I want to continue the conversation that you had there with Jason. Who do you want to hear from today? to hear from um, small Catholic nonprofits where you may or may not have a development person on staff. Um, but yeah. I, I want to hear from the, the leader of that organization who understands the importance of fundraising being integral to the work that they're doing. I'd love to mm-hmm. hear from, from pastors, whether Catholic or other denominations, of working with them, recognizing that you don't just fundraise and have the capital campaign with huge parish social hall that you need to build. Um, but again, it's the work the religious work that you're doing to be having these sorts of conversations with your parishioners ongoing. Um, and I want to work with people who are in leadership positions in, in classical schools in in private schools. 
uh, schools that are just starting up right now. There's a lot of those schools across who are looking for alternative options in education. I want to have a conversation with you. I'd love to hear more about what you're trying to achieve and see how um, we can start having those complex, messy conversations with the people that it matters most. Killian, it has certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Um, we'll put some information in the show notes so that people can reach out to you. Um, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.